Women Taking the Lead, Episode 85. It's really hard to just straight up ignore when someone says, hey, you know, come work for us. This is what we'll pay you. You always kind of at least have to take a half hour, a couple hours to kind of be like, okay, if you're going to say no to this, make sure you know why you're saying no to this. Hello, my name is Jody Flynn and welcome to Women Taking the Lead, where we are all about creating blasts of inspiration to help you overcome self-doubt so you can lead with confidence, integrity, and a sense of humor. Head over to womentakingthelead.com to get the solutions to your top five leadership challenges. Now, your future awaits, so let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'm here with Anna Lenhart, who is the founder of The Next Generation of Service, an online alternative career center that encourages recent graduates to start their career with a service year. Anna graduated from Carnegie Mellon University. With her Fulbright grant, she studied sustainable waste management practices in Namibian townships. (laughs) I'd say that five times fast. (laughs) She has since staked a role in the San Diego community as a Salesforce and technology consultant, working primarily with nonprofits and startup companies. Anna is also an ambassador for the Franklin Project. She loves surfing, rock climbing, and camping, and has visited 23 out of the 53 of the United States National Parks. That's amazing. Okay, Anna, that's a little intro for everyone. So tell us more about you and your own humble beginnings. Yeah, totally. So I grew up in Western Maryland, um, and I was raised pretty middle class. Um, I was a very competitive young person. So yeah, I was a runner, um, which I think are kind of naturally very competitive. And I, you know, wanted to be the top of my class and had huge aspirations. Um, But service was also always really important to me. So sometimes when you talk to entrepreneurs, you ask them about their childhood, like, and they tell you, oh, yeah, I had lemonade stands and newspaper routes. I never had any of that stuff. But I would start service projects. And basically, like, ask my parents and their friends to donate to these things that would never have any return on investment Mm -hmm. Um, besides just like whatever kind of social issue I was trying to do. So I would, I did a lot of adoptive families. Um, I started a recycling program at my high school. Um, At the time I had no idea that like those were entrepreneurial things. Um, I didn't, come in contact with social entrepreneurship until I got into college. And I realized like, oh, that's what I was doing. Um, So (laughs) so that was sort of my background. Um, Went to engineering school. I really thought that I was going to get an engineering degree and then work in, you know, biotech or sustainable energy, really like use engineering to solve major world problems. And I think I found out really fast that you know what, there's a lot more complexity to this than, you know, just creating really great solar panels. Like if you don't have the people who have, can get access to these panels, if you don't have the economic incentives and policies in place, they're never going to be competitive. Um, you know, all those things that kind of surround implementation of projects. So I really, really just opened my eyes to like the importance of really living in a world where all leaders really are putting the planet and people, you know, above profit and really just valuing those things and wanting to get a world that's just a really great place to live and really oh, just. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> so, I, so anyway, I, like I am not an engineer really anymore <laughs> So <laughs> because, because of all of that. Um, I, yeah, so they, there's two kind of 
in my humble beginnings that two things that are kind of important. So one is my work in Africa, which you talked a little bit about in the intro. Um, I think, you know, being raised middle class, you, you, you know, the definition of privilege is like not knowing you're privileged, right? Like that's kind of one of the definitions. And I think until I started working in sub-Saharan Africa, I really just didn't know (laughs) that I had so much more than the majority of this planet. So I think that's been something that's, uh, you know, you never forget. Um, and then the, the really life defining thing in my beginnings is during my junior year of college, started to have a lot of health problems, um, and just some anxiety issues too. I just like had a lot of, I think the competitive nature of my school and of, of me, um, made it really difficult. So I decided to take a year off quote unquote, and I participated in AmeriCorps. Um, and it turned out it was like not a year off at all. Um, it was, it was a year on in my career today is very much shaped by my year of service. So yeah, those are my beginnings. (laughs) That's, that's really huge. I love the vision of the world you're trying to create. Um, and you're definitely someone who doesn't sit back waiting for people to, you know, get things done. Like you're not a complainer, like you see things that need to be done and you, you act on it. You know, and I really love how, you know, and it's taken some twists and turns, right? There were some things you were you were going to make a difference in and you realize like, wow, this is way more complicated than I first imagined. And, you know, when you were talking, it reminded me of one of the last episodes of The West Wing, where one of the characters after her tenure in The West Wing um, and working for the president, you know, uh, like this billionaire um you know, um, what's the term for it? Like venture capitalists was Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to give you a ridiculous budget and you can do whatever you want with it to change the world. What pet project do you have? He's, he's like, I'll totally fund that. And she was like, she went back and forth because she was like, are you serious? Are you serious? Would you really (laughs) do this? And he was like, yes. And she was, he's like, so what would you do? She said, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. sexy, but most of the people who are most of the organizations that are trying to make a difference in the world can't get to the people who need it. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And it's it was really just true. so so amazing that I'm like, you know, we think about how here in in the US, we do a lot a lot of people donate a lot of money, mm-hmm. right? And resources to help people, but but if you think about it like we don't really think about what's the process. To get it to the people who are most in need. And are there organizations out there that are doing that work, right? There's so much more than just donating. Well, and the truth is we don't have a a democratic system around our donations. So in in the United States, so in more socialistic countries, right? So if you look at Europe, they don't have the nonprofit sector at, at the way we have it. So there, what happens is you pay a lot of taxes because, you know, socialists, so you pay a lot of taxes and the government does all of the things, all of the social services. In the United States, our government does significantly less social services and leaves it to our nonprofit sector to do most of them. And what this means is that the nonprofits that are getting funds, that's really dictated by the people who are donating. So in some ways it's democratic, but in some ways, some people don't have a vote. Some people, you know, they just don't have the funds to donate. So it's um, and it's something that you don't really think about until you're in the sector. And then you're like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And I'm not saying that like one way is good or one way is bad. I know some people in Europe look at our nonprofit sector and say, that's so cool. You know, it's so cool. that It's like grassroots and not controlled by your government. Um, And then on the flip side, you know, it's like, yes, but 
the people who really need our services, they don't get a vote, quote unquote, because they're, they own the fund. So it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting that you kind of bring that up. It is. And, you know, and it's why right now um, I, I have a friend who does consulting work for nonprofits to help them tell their story, because mm-hmm. that's really important for oh, these yeah. organizations. People have to hear the story because it's the emotional pull that causes people to donate money or get involved mm-hmm. in that sort of thing. And nonprofits who, who aren't very good at articulating their story or don't have the budgets to hire somebody, yep. sometimes they get overlooked and underserved. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, it's critical. All right. Well, all right, Anna. Well, we dove in really, really far already, <laughs> but we'll 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 take we'll take a step back a little bit and just acknowledge that clearly you've come a long way. You've had success in your life. You've, you know, I can hear it in your voice. You have a lot of confidence, right? But take us back to a time when you were playing small, and you may not have been aware of it at the time. It may only have been in retrospect that you realized that you were playing small. Share with us the story and the lessons you learned. Mm-hmm. I feel like I had these moments uh, more frequently than I would like. Um, I, I like to think that they're getting less frequent. Um, but there are definitely people who, who really intimidate me, you know, people who are older, who've had a lot of success. Um, and I notice myself, you know, get small in those moments. I think the the big place where I've noticed it is with fundraising. So I started the Next Generation of Service about three years ago. And when I originally started it, I wanted it to have sort of a, a revenue stream that was working with universities. And, you know, like most startups, we found out really fast that like, that was just not really going to work. Um, it turned out uh, working with universities is way more complicated than it should be. Um, and so we were like, okay, well, you know, we're back to kind of more traditional funding streams. Um, and I just noticed that I really struggled to like, you know, I'd have a meeting with a donor and I'd say, so do you want to donate? And, you know, I, I kind of always phrased it as a question and I never really wanted to ask for an amount. Mm. Um, and, you know, I thought this was like kind of normal. And then I noticed that some of my, I, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of other nonprofit founders, you know, we're pretty close knit community, especially here in San Diego and especially some of the male ones, I'll talk to them and they'll be like, oh yeah, no, I just asked a donor. I didn't know for like $30,000 this morning. And I'm like, how did you do that? <laughs> like, um, so that's when I kind of was like, okay, you are clearly, you know, you just need to like be more brave, you know? Um, and it's, it's still definitely a struggle. And I think one of the kind of like beliefs that it kind of gets thrown around as I'm struggling with the fundraising part is that national service, what, what next generation of service is really doing is reaching young people of, of all backgrounds from all different kinds of schools and we're really just educating them on opportunities to go do a year of service. And the impact, like our ROI, our return on investment, isn't really going to show up until these young people get back from their service, go into their career, and start to make decisions that look really different than what leaders are currently uh, deciding. And so that is really, it's hard to sell. And I think I've told myself, like, oh, this is hard to sell. You know, Uh so Mm -hmm. even though it's like a huge mission. So I definitely am like, oh, you've got to like, you really need to own how big this mission is. And um, yeah, so it's an ever, you know, ever going process. 
<laughs> you know, and I think that's the case for most of us, right? We have good days and bad days, right? There are days where we're, we're completely behind everything we're doing. We feel really confident. It's clear to us how important the work we do is, and we just put it out there. And then there are days we wake up and go, what, what, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, <laughs> Right. Like, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know what that is, but we have to constantly remind ourselves of what we're up to and how Mm -hmm. important it is. Yeah. Every day you have to wake up and say, this is, uh, you have to wake up and make the choice every day. Right. And it doesn't have to be necessarily in sales or asking for money. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just like looking for opportunities or asking a question in a way that makes the other person want to say yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Or that it's already given. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing, too, is I'll have people be like, oh, have you talked to this big company or I have a friend who works at this big foundation? And I've literally been like, oh, they'll never invest in us, you know? And yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, well, I mean, Anna, you could at least, you know, meet with them and see, you know, you never know. Um, so, yeah, it's a yeah, it's, <laughs> it's changing. It's changing that story of what's going on. Right. I was talking to a woman the other day and she was talking about having to um kind of cold visit companies like where she walks in the door and asks to speak to a manager. Right. (laughs) Yes. And she's like, I can't, there was one place she said, I just kept driving by it because I need, I needed to go in, but I was just too afraid. And, you know, I was like, oh my God, they're going to yell at me and tell me to get out. And then she stopped and she thought about like, well, what's really the worst that can happen? Because the chances Mm -hmm. of them yelling at her are pretty slim, but she's like, they'll just say no and ask me to have a nice day. Right. Some probably something like that. So she finally garnered up the courage to go in and they were really excited about what she was proposing. And they were like, yeah, this is great. We were looking for something like this. And so it really takes just changing the story around it. You know, like you like the story Mm -hmm. you have going through your head right now is they'll never invest in this. They're not bought in. But you Mm -hmm. but you will. But you don't know who's on the other side of that door. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Huge, huge. All right, Anna, now share with us a time in your journey when you had a wake-up call. Take us back to that moment and share with us the steps you took that led to your success. Hmm. So I I can't remember like any distinct wake-up calls per se, but there definitely have been some crossroads where it's like, okay, you have kind of like a gun to your head right now, you know, so what are you going to do? And these really show up in the form of job opportunities. So it's really common. So, so the next generation of service I should kind of explain is, uh, it's totally volunteer led. Um, and so I spend about 30 hours a week on it. And so to pay my bills, I, I am a freelance, uh, contractor doing technology consulting and, what happens when you do this kind of consulting work, especially if you're if you're good at it, you get offered full-time jobs relatively frequently. And because mm-hmm. it's in the technology space, sometimes these come in are very close to six figures. And I've even had a couple over six figures. This is this is real money, real salaries. Right. Um, and and so I those are the moments where it's like it's really hard to just straight up ignore when someone says, Hey, you know, come work for us. This is what we'll pay you. Um, you always kind of at least have to take half hour, a couple hours to kind of be like, okay, if you're going to say no to this, make sure you know why you're saying no to this. And really just, it's a, it's a time where I've always had to kind of look at like, okay, you know, how is the next generation of service doing? Is it, is it really meeting the goals that you set out? Um, and and what is your measure of success going to look like? Because right now you're not making anything close to the amount of money that these people are offering you. So is that okay? You know, are, are you having other forms of impact that are important to you? 
and is mm. that willing to sacrifice? Um, yeah. So I'm really grateful for those moments. And, um, you know, and I think my gut always tells me right away, like, you're not going to take this job. <laughs> like, but I still go ahead and take the time to like, uh, put a little bit of reason and really take a look at the next generation of service and how we're doing. Um, mm. So that's, you know, that's, those are definitely some wake up calls. And, and even within that has been really defining success for myself, because I think it's really easy to fall into like the standard trap. And again, kind of back to my backstory, like I was a very competitive kid, right? Like I wanted the highest GPA, wanted to win races. I wanted these very measurable things. Um, and so now it's kind of like, okay, you, you're clearly saying no to like very high salary, very like standard views of success. So what is your success going to be? I love that. And you know what, Anna, I was thinking too, you need to take that story into the donor meetings that you have. <laughs> like, I believe in this mission so much. I say no to six figure salary offers, <laughs> right? Because isn't that the case? Like, yeah, yeah. I think it's funny. There aren't very many engineers that work in the nonprofit sector. So for, for most nonprofit leaders, like they, they couldn't just turn around and make that amount. So it's, I have a weird skill set. And most, you know, most people don't really know that. And when I go in to talk to a funder, they don't really know that I actually am an engineer by training. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's always an interesting kind of conversation. Yeah. And then yeah, normally, honestly, the response I normally get when I do say something like that, which is, is very rare that I would say something like that. But, but when I do, it's normally then why are you doing Like, why are you doing this? Like, they almost look at me like I'm really dumb, especially people from like in their 30s and 40s, like, um, you know, like Gen, Gen Xers that are like very practical, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, why are you doing this? Um, and I tried to explain it to them, but, you know, if you're just so logical, it's, it's a pretty illogical decision. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty <laughs> logical Gen Xer as well, you know, but I think it would be my curiosity. Like there's something Mm -hmm. to this, right? That it's not, I think you're crazy. It's like, that's really interesting. There's something Mm -hmm. I'm missing, right? Because I don't get the decision, right? So I I would want you to break it down for me. Like, what is it that makes you so passionate about this? What has you believe in it so much? Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm is huge because clearly there is something there, like in your gut, your gut speaks to you every time, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to do it. But I, what I loved in your answer, you said as well is you take time to consider it because you've got to know for sure. You're not just following your path blindly. Right. Right. Exactly. It's the right. It's, it's grounded in something more than just, I believe this can happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And being realistic, too, of like, okay, so how long are you going to be able to sustain on this path? And what are you doing to try to bring sustainability to the next generation of service so that, you know, you're not continually saying no to jobs or to just to supportive income, you know? So right. that, that's been important, too. Right. It's a good motivator. Like, right. I got to get this off the ground. Like, <laughs> exactly. let's go. Because <laughs> eventually people that. are going to stop offering you jobs, right? So, like, you got to kind of. Right. You can't count on it. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And what I want everyone to get is there's no one way to lead. We're all different. We bring different skills to the table. And so we're going to naturally lead differently. So how would you describe your leadership style? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
You know, it really depends on what I'm leading. So my background is in civil engineering specifically, um, which is construction, like construction projects. So I lead those very differently than um, kind of my work in the not-for-profit sector. But in the not-for-profit not for profit sector, um, my first goal is to surround myself with people who believe in the mission. Um, and early on, when I was building Next Generation of Service, I went out looking for specific skill sets and found really fast that no matter how skilled the person was, if they didn't really get what we were doing, then it, it didn't always work out. Um, whereas if I had someone who really, really understood what we were doing and maybe didn't have the exact skill set, um, they still showed up in super supportive ways. Um, so that's my, definitely my first priority now is people who get it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then from there, it's really taking a look at like, okay, so what are their skill sets? Um, what are their skill sets? How are their skill sets different than mine? So that's going to be really critical. Um, and then how are their perspectives different? So like, for example, one of our newest guides, she is really young. She's like 18. She did her year of service. She's like 19. So she did her year of service at 18, which is about as young as you can do it. And she, um, is just super passionate and the way she speaks online and the way she speaks to students that she gets paired with, um, is just very like very like Snapchatty and like all these like newer social media things and so it's really fun to kind of think about okay so these are people who get your mission but they have very different perspectives so how do we make space well how do I how do I listen and make space to kind of hear and utilize their skill sets and also how do I make a safe space for open disagreements right or or just to hear feedback like we're not on Snapchat should we be I don't know um <laughs> you know right. just like making space for those kind of things that I wouldn't have thought about otherwise I think that's uh, that's really key right now just working in the nonprofit sector is surrounding yourself with people yeah no that's huge and that's really great that you know what is critical is that people have buy in Mm-hmm. Right. Because the people who are bought in, who get it, who, you know, are on board will go above and beyond. They may mm-hmm. not have the exact skill sets, but maybe maybe there's something you can train them in mm-hmm. or you can leverage a skill set you don't have or nobody else has around. So that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to get to this because I know you're going to get super passionate about <laughs> the thing you're working on right now that has you really excited. What do you want to share with us? Yeah. Well, so first we're in the middle of our What Inspires You campaign, which is our year in fundraising campaign. But it's it's a fun campaign because when students come to our website and they sign up for a session, we ask them what inspires you. And so we've have we have all these answers now from the past two years. And so we're doing this really fun social media campaign and we're inviting everyone to kind of also answer the question. But it's also really fun to see what these 18 to 24 year olds are saying in response to that question. So definitely uh, encourage everyone to check that out. But then also our biggest project is that we've partnered with the Positive Impact podcast, Alex Black Pollock, who you had on your show a couple weeks ago. And we are hosting a week-long virtual summit that features 20 speakers who all got their start in a year of service. And the reason I'm really passionate about this is because when I go to universities or speak with students... Tons of students want to be social entrepreneurs. They want to start nonprofits. They want to start social businesses. And the thing is, before you can really start a nonprofit, you really need to understand what your program, what your solution 
um, what part that's going to play in the overall issue that you're addressing, right? So if you're working with homeless people and you want to help make sleep pads, um, that might be one solution to kind of help, you know, help give them some comfort. But what are the other impacts of that? Like, how else is that going to look? And those are things you really, you can only learn really when you're working hands-on in the sector. So mm-hmm. I, I tell these young people like, hey, go do a year of service. Like, I promise you, you're going to learn about how nonprofits work and you're going to get a little bit more clarity on your solution and, and how it plays in the overall puzzle of social change. And um, so we're really excited to do this summit because it's really going to showcase that like this is a pathway into this life. So I'm mm-hmm. really excited about and that. you get 20 different perspectives on how mm-hmm. people do did it right Mm -hmm. and I love how you describe that it's really important that if you want to go into that sector to get that year of service in because you've said a couple of times thus far like you learned pretty quickly that it was a lot more complicated Mm -hmm. than you first thought it was so Mm -hmm. it's nice to have that exposure to it you know before you dive in right Mm -hmm. like all like before you're all in to take that time to explore and experiment with it Mm -hmm. so that sounds like a lot of fun. I bet you're having some incredible conversations with these, oh, yeah. these funny entrepreneurs. So cool. All right, Anna, now I'm going to do a quick leadership roundup. So tell us, what is one practice that you have that helps to make you a better leader? Mm-hmm. So right now I'm really working on listening. So I'm definitely an ideas person and I, I have a lot of ideas. And when an idea comes to me, I just want to blurt it out. Um And so I'm really trying to take a step back and let people finish their thoughts um, and really hear what they're saying and also really hear from like our our customers or our students and our universities, really listening to their feedback um, along with, you know, the volunteers and, and board members. So that it's, you know, I'm not saying that I do it well, but, um, (laughs) that is the current practice that I'm really working on. You know, listening is probably the skill that most of us need to constantly be working on. I've been doing it for years and I can become a better listener, right? There's always room to get better. And earlier when you were talking about your leadership style, you talked about how you also had this goal to create a safe space for Mm -hmm. people to disagree, right? And listening is a huge part of that. Like people feel safe to share their thoughts when they feel like they've been listened to. But when you get cut off and shut down and people, interrupt you before you're finished it doesn't feel safe at all so that's a great practice to continue given the goals that you have Mm -hmm. and Anna what is one book that you would recommend to a woman to help her develop her leadership yeah so along similar lines I really think every person who is a leader or wants to be a leader should be reading Rising Strong by Brene Brown Mm -hmm. Um, yeah you know, like most Brene Brown's books, it definitely touches on vulnerability and in our stories and our fears. But she really is taking an angle of leadership here. And she's really, I mean, leaders have the most to lose to be vulnerable. I mean, to be the CEO of a company and to get up and tell your employees, like, you didn't get a deal because you failed um, mm. is just so huge and so scary. But also, if every CEO was doing that, like, totally different world you know, totally yeah. different world. Um, so that's really inspiring. And she talks a lot also about, she calls it the rumble, but it's this, the same idea of like creating a safe space where like, if you have a fear that comes up and it causes you to snap at your employee or your volunteer, um, how do you not just let that go and become like a passive behavior? 
Um, how do you actually like dive into that and and from that space actually build a relationship with that person? Now all of a sudden coworkers aren't just coworkers, they're they're your family and your friends and now you're doing really meaningful work. So yeah, yeah I just right. like the transformation that that kind of would make if all of our workplaces functioned like that is just really huge. Right. Because the thing is, is, and I've read her book. I loved it too. Mm -hmm. I I listened to the audio version while I was flying (laughs) across the country. Really good. I love listening to her voice tell, read the book, but I really, um, wanted to underscore that too, because we're all human. We're all going to make mistakes. There's going to be occasions where we're short with somebody or we're not giving them their best. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of us, we do become shamed by that. We're ashamed of Mm -hmm. how we, we responded or how we carried ourselves. And sometimes we just want it to go away because it's too painful Mm -hmm. to acknowledge. And so we just hope that the other person didn't get too hurt and that they'll let it go. Right. Mm -hmm. We just want to make it go away. But there's actually, like you said, there's a power in going back, you know, really like doing the work mm-hmm, there exactly. to acknowledge what you did, to say, I'm sorry, and to commit, you mm-hmm. know, to something better in the relationship, you know, and, and ask the other person for their support, right? Mm-hmm. There is something very humbling, but powerful. And trust gets built. Yes. I mean, and that's so critical. And, and I mean, you think about, you know, all the big mistakes and kind of corruption that sometimes comes out of big companies and organizations and it's I mean trust it's there was no you know trust was lost so Mm. yeah it's it's really crazy to think about awesome really great book to read so Mm -hmm. love it and Anna what advice would you give your younger self yeah so you, you know when you're really competitive it can become really easy to to not put relationships first, um, you know, competitiveness, jealousy, jealousy can really hinder relationships. So I think what I would want to tell my younger self is the relationships are actually the most important thing you have. Um, when I, so I was a very competitive distance runner until, until my senior year of college. And I actually got diagnosed with Lyme's disease and now I can't even run a hundred meters. And, Luckily, I've been able to like repair and strengthen some of my friendships from from the cross country team. But I really wish I had just like just been less of a jerk sometimes, you know, <laughs> like on like just in the competitive nature of the sport. Um, and just like the idea of rising tide tides raise all ships. So like if if you do notice a little spark of jealousy, like befriend that person, help them actually do what they're trying to do even better. Yes, I, I'm, I'm laughing too, because on occasion, not always, but I do have like a competitive nature as well. And it can be fun. And it can be very motivating until it like crosses the line. And then mm-hmm. not that not, not always that you're behaving like a jerk. But the first stage before that is right. you kind of close yourself off from other people. Mm-hmm. Right? It's you, it's you against them. They are your competitor. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you start to relate to people like that. But, you know, there there definitely can be some fun mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. In, in competition. I always try to, to integrate that. But that's that's some great advice um, for some people out there who may notice that they're very competitive and they don't feel very close to people. They don't feel mm-hmm. like they they trust other people or other people have their back. They can take a look at, well, I'm, am, am I being too competitive mm-hmm. here? Very cool. Now, Anna, share with us a success quote or a mantra and why it has meaning for you. 
Yeah. So my email signature is actually a line from a Rumi poem. Um, It's let yourself be silently drawn by the strange pool of what you really love. It will not lead you astray. And that is really um, another one of those things. It's like a daily challenge, right? Like, can you wake up every day, make enough space to listen to what your heart is telling you to do, and then actually choose to do that thing in the face of all the things you should quote unquote be doing um, that society has kind of laid out for you. So um, yeah, it's, it's the daily chore, I guess. That's a really nice one. I've, I've, um, I know a lot of quotes from Rumi, but this is not one I've heard before. And I, I love that. He, d- he just has a way of saying things that makes mm-hmm. you feel like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the silently drawn too. And I, when I'm working yes. with students, you know, the biggest thing with like 22 and 23 year olds these days is they're just like, I don't know what I'm passionate about. And everyone says I should live my passion. I'm like, you know, just you're, you can't, if you get so stressed out about that, you're, you're not going to find it. What you really need to do is just today, what was something that sparked your curiosity? Okay, go research that. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to tell anyone that you're like interested in this one lawsuit because then they might say, oh, she's going to be a lawyer. Like you don't just just research it a little bit, you know, and just keep doing that every day. And then eventually, you know, you will get some clarity. So, you know, that's what I love about. I love that line, too. I love that, too. I have a client who's 24 and we were just chatting yesterday and she's like, I feel like with my generation, there's all this pressure to be passionate. (laughs) You have to be passionate about what you're doing or you shouldn't be doing it. And she's like, and sometimes it just sucks. And I was like, I get it. Yes. You can't always be super passionate. You won't always be. Yeah. I mean, even like the next generation of service, like I love it, but there's elements of it that I hate doing, you know, like. Right. I really don't like fundraising. So, you know, right. <laughs> and there's other elements too, but, but yeah. But that's a great d- way of looking at things differently. Like don't feel, you know, don't be pressured by having to feel passion. Just recognize where you, what sparked your curiosity and, and explore it on your own for a while. If you want to, you don't have to tell everybody mm-hmm. like what you're up to and like, put it, put it under the microscope for other people. So great advice. And lastly, Anna, what is the best way for this community to connect with you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Anna C. Lenhart. And then you can also just go to the ngsmovement.org and see all of our links and all of the work that we're up to. Awesome. And for those of you listening, you can find all the links and resources shared in this episode at womentakingthelead.com, or you can use the short link, which is womentl.com. And Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to inspire and enlighten us. We are all better for having met you. Thanks for having me and thanks for the work you're doing. Thank you for joining me on Women Taking the Lead. Were you inspired to take some action today, but maybe don't know where to start? Or maybe you have so many great ideas you can't decide where to focus your attention. Don't let stress or overwhelm stop you from having the career, the business, or the life you want to live. Head over to womentakingthelead.com forward slash coaching or use the short link womentl.com forward slash coaching to sign up for a consultation with me. And to strengthen you on your leadership journey, I'd like to send you off with a quote from Marianne Williamson. So here goes. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. 
Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Again, thank you for joining me, and here's to your success.